Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Man, I am so excited about this episode. Shelly Bond joins us on Word Balloon. First time she's ever been on. First conversation ever with Shelly. And I felt like uh, we were very simpatico. Uh, I feel like she would have been somebody I would have hung out with in college. We both come from college radio backgrounds, which I'm sure doesn't mean much in today's uh, youth culture. But back then, those were the cool kids that knew the brand new music and had first exposure to it and couldn't wait to share it with uh, the audience. And that love of music comes through in a lot of uh, comics that Shelley edits to this day, not only her wonderful run at Vertigo, but also her new imprint from IDW called Black Crown. It's great to talk to her about this. The first book from Black Crown is Kid Lobotomy, written by Peter Milligan, drawn by Tess Fowler. Lee Lowridge is doing the colors and Aditya Bidikar. I believe, is uh, your uh, letterer. And I'm telling you, it's a great combination of uh, artists, creators, and uh, it's a wonderful look at uh, the Black Crown imprint and what's to follow. Really interesting pair-ups of creators, both old and new, and I'll let Shelly go into the details of that, and also the environment that she's creating with the Black Crown imprint. Pretty neat stuff. We also get into some great autobiographical stuff of Shelly talking about how she got into comics, her uh, early uh, influences in terms of editorial uh, leanings, and uh, it's great. I love this conversation, and I think you're going to like it as well. Shelly Bond, for the full hour, it's more than an hour, on today's Word Balloon. It's brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. I am heading towards Salt Lake uh, Comic Con, coming up uh, this week, this Wednesday, and I'm on a slew of panels. I hope you'll join me. I'll I'll also have a table there. I don't have my table number currently, but... um, First of all, on uh, on Thursday, I've got a panel uh, for, at 3 o'clock called Spider-Man, Five Stories That Define the Character. And then also on at 7 o'clock, DC on Television featuring Arrow, The Flash, Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow, and Gotham. On Friday, I have a couple panels as well. Sorry, I'm like scrolling as I'm talking here. Let's see here. There's Friday. Friday, I've got two panels, and they are uh, the spotlight on Mike Zeck and John Beatty. Very excited to do this interview with that wonderful uh, art team that was so important on so many great runs at Marvel, Punisher, Circle of Blood, Captain America, and the like. Six o'clock, it's a panel about television on the Marvel side. The Defenders, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Legion, a lot more. And uh, that's going to be a fun uh, conversation as well. I enjoy these panels at uh, Salt Lake City Comic Con because uh, they're they're really great, very informative, and uh, a lot of fun debate. On Saturday, a spotlight on Joe Rubenstein. This has been a long time coming. I don't think I was ready a few years ago to talk to Joe Rubenstein. I feel like I am now and give him his due. Uh, a wonderful anchor, the man behind uh, Ohatmu, the official Marvel handbook. And then uh, that's at 3 o'clock. And then 7 o'clock, King of the Zombies. The Work and Influence of George Romero. I'll be talking on that panel. And then finally at 8 o'clock, probably one of the last uh, panels of the uh, of the convention, Welcome to Riverdale, the talk of the town. That'll be great because, again, neat uh, television panel. And I love Riverdale. I, I'm really impressed with how much uh, it was fun. I'm really looking forward to season two. And uh, I, I couldn't be happier for the people at Archie for having such a great TV series. I hope it's helping them out financially. And it certainly is helping a new generation love and appreciate Archie and the Riverdale gang. So pretty neat stuff. That's at Salt Lake City Con. I mention all this because the League of Word Balloon listeners, will you help me uh, out to get to conventions? 
uh, make new connections, uh, hopefully uh, network with some people and uh, get them to come on the show. New equipment for the podcast. All of that is uh, done through uh, the sponsorship of the League of Word Balloon listeners. If you can spare it, do you think Word Balloon is worth the price of a comic book? Go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. That's where you can subscribe. Or you can go to wordballoon.com and click on the Patreon ad there. It will take you to my Patreon page. Thank you very much for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades. At InStockTrades.com, there are some very neat uh, sales going on at InStock Trades. For instance, there's the last chance sale where you can save from 50 to 90% on a list of mostly out-of-print titles. There's also a great sale on Valiant Books. Select Valiant Books are up to 55% off. And uh, there's a lot more savings on books that just came out this week. On things like Legends of the Dark Knight, Jim Aparo, the hardcover Volume 3, uh, pretty neat stuff. Bob Haney and others do the writing, but uh, this really goes back to Jim's classic runs on Brave and Bold, Detective Comics, Batman Family, The Untold Legend of the Batman, a great little miniseries that uh, readdresses Batman's uh, origins. But Jim Aparo, man, unique uh, Batman artist. Uh, so much so that I remember a conversation with Neil Adams. I thought that uh, maybe Jim Aparo might have been influenced by Neil's Batman, but Neil himself said, no, no, no. Jim Aparo drew his own Batman, which is pretty high praise coming from Neil Adams. 50% off for this book. It's $24.99. You can get The Punisher by Garth Ennis Omnibus, the hardcover. It's a new printing. It uh, has a lot of great stories, 1,136 pages. It's got a great Tim Bradstreet cover. It's 42% off, $58 at InStockTrades.com. That's just the tip of the iceberg. Go there, check out the deals. You're going to find great books at great prices at InStockTrades.com. All right, without further ado, let's talk to Shelley Bond and get to know her. And I really do love talking to editors in general. But, uh, man, there was just some sort of special alchemy going on at Vertigo back in the day. And Shelley was a big part of that. So uh, I really uh, love to uh, get into the heads of the Vertigo editors, how they chose the talent, the projects they were all looking for and thought would be great. Uh, it's been a wonderful thing to uh, talk to these people. Will Dennis was my first. Now I get to talk to Shelley Bond in detail. I'm hoping more conversations with former Vertigo editors uh, come up in the um, months and years ahead. Uh, I wish DC would make more Vertigo editors, including the current ones available. They don't. I have to wait for them to leave, but that's fine because Shelly's found a great new home at IDW with her Black Crown imprint. It's a pleasure to talk to her, so let's get to the conversation now. Shelly Bond on Word Balloon. Stephen told me to bring earbuds, and I, of course, forgot because I've been in the throes of deadline hell. I understand. And I just, I've had such a, a crazy couple of weeks, but we, we, um, put the black crown quarterly number one up to the printer today oh, that's so great. i'm feeling exhausted but yet exhilarated because it was a hell of a book to put together and i'm so proud of it well that's excellent we'll talk about that as well no i really honestly uh i always had to wait for all of you that i really respected that worked at vertigo to leave because ah. DC would never let me talk to editors, and it oh, drove really? me crazy. Yes. Oh God. Yeah, okay. I, and and truly, I've been aware of you, and had meant to to reach out to you at a convention or something, and it, the the occasion just never presented itself. But uh, Will Dennis, for years, I'm like, there's going to come a time that you're not working there, and I'm and you're going to sit down and do a talk with me, and he would always yeah. laugh, and he finally did with uh, the book that he made with Jock. So, 
Yeah, I remember listening to that. Oh my god, oh, that's really nice. I'm so glad that you know what I do, Shelley. Truly, oh. thank you. Listen, I um, I do, and I, I listened to that a while ago, and then I, I was actually um, in preparation. Um, I was just trolling through some of the podcasts, and I was, of course, made the mistake of listening to Kelly Sue DeConnick. So talk about like setting <laughs> yourself up for like, how can you follow Kelly Sue? She's the but best. you have some, you had some some terrific people that you've talked to, and not just the usual suspects, which I think was was interesting. I appreciate that. I, you know, I well, like you, as I imagine, we'll discover when we, you know, get going here. Uh, I follow my taste. I, I follow the people that I really love and, and really respect their work. They're the people I want to talk to. I don't have a lot of X-Men uh, conversations, yeah. and it's nothing against the X-Men. I just don't, A, I don't care about the characters. And so, fine, you know, God, uh, I, I want to say Milligan probably even wrote an X-Men thing. Well, of course, oh, he did yeah. Aesthetic and X-Force, of yeah. course. Yeah, sure. See, and there you go. Now, I love Milligan's work, and I even broke habit and read those, but... Yeah, for the most part, it's you know I just if I don't if I don't care about the subject, it's like I, I really don't want to you know bother. And certainly yeah. that goes with creators. And sometimes it's great that creating you know the creator own world is getting as as good as it is because a lot of times, in fact, I just tweeted about it. I hate when I one of my favorite writers or artists are working on a, a subject that I really don't care for, and I don't know. So that's my old school kind of tie to the old characters where it's like, nope, don't care about the X-Men. Don't, don't even want to read it versus, Oh, you know, but this is a great creator and I really, you know, I do love their work. So it's great that they were able to do their own thing. Interesting. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Anyway. Hmm. All right. Well, yeah, if you're ready, we'll, we'll begin. I'm ready. I just, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about this. So, um, so basically you're recording this. Do you do any edits or is this pretty much yeah. just going to go as I, is? I do it as is, but I mean, honestly, like, you know, Hey, it's just comics. If you know, if you say something, you're like, Oh shit, I really shouldn't have said that or whatever. Totally okay. fine. Uh, and I mean, honestly, I, you know, like Jed Van Meter is a type of person that likes to sit and think about her answers. So I'll tighten it up from that standpoint and things. But, uh, okay. yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of hoping for the conversation to flow. Okay. I warn you, I'm I'm not the best interviewee. I so tend to ramble. I tend to ramble. No problem. And I noticed with Kelly Sue, she's so much fun to listen to because she's just like so off the cuff. Yes. And I, I figured there were you know, expletives are fine totally. if they're printed. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You know, I come from radio, so this is a pleasure to be unfiltered. And- oh fine. Yeah, I was going to say, you definitely have a radio voice. I was a college <laughs> DJ. so oh, that's great. You see, and I, I kind of could tell from your music taste and stuff, you're, you're from that world of college radio and stuff, which, uh-huh. when it was yeah. great. I hope our musical taste um, either is somewhat simpatico, Seems to or be. you're going to be open to some suggestions, because I, I definitely am an, I'm an elitist about music, probably even more so than comics. I I believe that, and I don't want to leave our game in the locker room. But I, as far as our, you know, talking about this on the air, but yeah, I uh, no, I sense that, and I and it, it is truly your love for music obviously comes through in the projects that you work on, comic wise. So that doesn't surprise me. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, really, like CMJ, the magazine. Oh yeah. I mean, I when uh, when I first started in college radio, it was still on legal paper. 
Yep. That, yeah, okay. And it was like more of like a newsletter that came in a big fat envelope and everything rather yeah. than a proper magazine. You see, there you go. At it, girl. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. A lot of my closest friends in college went on to do radio or work for like A&R men and sure. stuff. And it was a tough, it was a tough decision because I studied film and video and audio production. And I loved being a DJ because of the time, you know, it was the best time to be a, a college DJ back in the late eighties or um, yes. music was just incredible. Yes. And that was like where my heart and soul was, but I also loved editing. I loved film. Sure. And uh, it was a little too short to be a, a great cinematographer, but I could carry the equipment and I could edit. And I found that editing was actually editing tape back in those days is, is not unlike editing comic books in so many ways. I mean, you're still deciding how you want to tell the story. So it's fascinating to me. If you think about it, I completely agree. And as someone that, you know, does a, a lot of audio editing in my day job and stuff, or did, I should say, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I get all that. If it's okay, I wouldn't mind leaving that in the conversation. Yeah, of course. All right, here we go. Cause I don't, like I said, I don't want to leave it. Uh, no, for <laughs> all, right. It. all right, here we go then. <clears throat> this is really a pleasure to welcome Shelly Bond to word balloon because I'm a, I'm a longtime fan. And as I was saying, <clears throat> excuse me, as I was saying off the air, um, Getting Will Dennis, it, it seems like I always had to wait for you, uh, you Vertigo people that I that I really admired to to leave the company, and then you okay. guys can talk. So <laughs> clearly, clearly, you're on my father's payroll. But thank you for saying that. No, it's a pleasure, truly, and congratulations. This Black Crown imprint sounds amazing because it has an edi- editorial purpose be- beyond the fact that it has the Shelley Bond brand to it, uh, truly. So explain the conceit behind uh, Black Crown. Okay, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for noticing. And, uh, God, I don't know how much someone paid you to interview Will Dennis. My God, that guy. <laughs> Whoa, that guy just, uh, he just is, a, is, well, we'll save serious talk about Will for later because we go way back, as I'm sure you recall from his interview. He talked about me for about 20 seconds, I'm sure. <laughs> you know that we're you know that we have a history because we were friends in college. I didn't know that and uh no, I do. I want to get into the origin of, of Shelly Bond, but I but, <laughs> but I also oh. I want to uh you know, I, I understand and certainly IDW's probably like, hey, talk about Black Crown, will you? And, and oh. that's you know, and of course you you're really I know you're excited about it. We were just talking about this before we started recording. But uh but yeah, let's yeah. uh let's let's at least uh yeah, find out what makes Black Crown different from other imprints? Okay, then we'll make fun of Will Dennis yes. later, as long as you promise. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so Black Crown is uh, an, an, an incredible endeavor, I will say. I, I've never been this excited about uh, a group of projects before. And I've been in the industry for a quarter of a century. <clears throat> I can't believe that. It doesn't feel like it, but it's true. And... The books that I'm going to be putting out on Black Crown are the ones that really um, mean the most to me and really reflect my point of view. Um, Black Crown is not just the name of the imprint, but it's a way of life. And it's also the name of a pub that exists on a street. And I put street in air quotes if you can see them. Um, Because basically what Black Crown is, is it's a shared environment. 
So imagine, if you will, your favorite high street in Chicago or in New York. Uh, for me, it is New York. It's um, St. Mark's Place, which is pretty much where I came of age in the 90s. But your favorite street, the place you would go to get that 12-inch import or that rare Michael Moorcock signed book, that's the place we're creating at Black Crown. It's And the street itself is anchored by the pub. And all of the comics that come out through the Black Crown imprint can commingle and corrupt and sort of interact in each other's books as little or as much as they want. Okay. Well, and then, um, so yeah, as you say, a shared environment is, uh, is, was this like, was this your idea? Is this what you wanted to do? Like leaving Vertigo and having the opportunity to come and create this imprint? Was this, was this the plan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I left Vertigo, I pretty much couldn't work for a little while. And I spent the summer just reading and writing and tap dancing a lot. That's my secret hobby. Fantastic. But I basically took the summer. You know, I I hadn't had a summer off since 1979. I've already pretty much set up my age. So, you know, I might as well just go all out. But I, um, I, I come from a family business, so my dad always put my sister and I to work and worked through college and never really had a summer where I could just be a slug and be a slacker. So I really let myself do that for three months and I was lazy and had a great time. But you know, when you're into comics and you're into story and you're into pop culture, your mind doesn't stop. You know, I was going to art galleries. I was doing a lot of my own writing because when you edit for 25 years, usually you don't have a lot of time for your own stuff. So it was liberating in so many ways. But pretty much by the end of the summer, I had the bones of Black Crown together. And there were always people in the industry that I wanted to work with who were perhaps a little too indie for Vertigo, or maybe they just didn't like the corporation. And so I knew that when I put together my own imprint, I was really going to just go for a very selective group As you probably know from reading some of my titles, I'm really, really picky about not just the story, but art and design. So knowing that I was going to put together a small imprint, I only wanted a very specific coterie of talent. And I guess just working over the years, the greatest thrill for me as an editor was always to like get the main idea, try to figure out what the writer wanted to achieve, and then bring in an artist who not only would complement the writer's vision, but perhaps twist it, turn it upside down, rip it apart, and then let it become something else on the page. So I always knew that if I did something on my own as far as an imprint, I would really want no shackles. I'd want to just be able to go with my gut, not have to jump through hoops of fire for approval and really just let the art happen on the page. Cause that to me is the magic of comics as an art form. And the goal of black crown for me, the personal goal is to elevate the art form at all costs. I was reading a, a paste interview you did. And uh, you said too, that you want to pair up, establish people with new people as well, which I think is a great idea. And, uh, you know, how did, how did kid injection become the first book? 
Well, kid lobotomy. Uh, pardon became, me. I'm sorry. Kid. Uh, that's okay. Kid lobotomy. Kid, kid Jackson could be a long lost cousin. The kid lobotomy. <laughs> My jokes are terrible, by the way. You might just want to put a permanent laugh track down. No, no, but I like the jam. That was good, and that was fair, because, yes, Kid, kid Lobotomy, well, please. <laughs> you told me you were sick, and I was going to give you a break, and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to be go easier on you. So one of the important things, um, as you just mentioned about Black Crown, is that it's not just bringing in new people. I mean, any company can do that, but what I hope I can do that's a little bit different is – Bring people together from disparate places and really unite the the old and the new. Mm -hmm. And whether that means like the hardcore veteran, like Peter Milligan, who's been around the block and then some. And I think he's been writing since 84, if I'm not mistaken, cool. which makes him a lot older than me. <laughs> there either. But uniting someone like Milligan with Tess Fowler, who is, um, well, she's certainly one of the the cool punk voices of our times, but she's an artist who I think is really just like reaching that creative apex in her work. I have been really fascinated in watching her career because I know she started at heavy metal about 10 or 12 years ago. And she was sort of a protege of Simon Bisley. And he's a, one of my favorite artists and favorite people in comics and so watching um, Tess evolve from those days into the tremendous artist that she is now is great. But she was definitely one of those people on my radar when I was at Vertigo. She was on my list, and I never quite had the opportunity to reach out to her. And it was just fortuitous that last year when I was starting to put together the imprint, I I just thought it was the right time to reach out for her. And we have... Um, you know, we had a, a similar situation happen to us um, last at the end of last summer, and we kind of started chatting online, and it kind of grew from there. And um, I was able to to show her a few of the pitches that I had for Black Crown, and she actually liked them all. But there was something about Kid Lobotomy that really blew her mind, and I thought, wow, I think I think it'd be really interesting for Milligan to work with a very bold, smart female artist who takes no prisoners in person or on the page and who could really um, bring an interesting twist to the concept. No question. And, and yeah, I, the, you know, I, I love the team up and that's interesting that that's how it came about. So did the writers then basically gave you their pitches for what they would do with black crown. And then you're, you're the one that's then suggesting artists. That's, is that how it pretty much went? Or is going. Well, it you know it, it it really started with me reaching out to people whose work I admired, you know, and and sometimes that means I'll meet someone at a convention and I'll just have a chat with them, and I can usually tell within five or ten minutes if this person is the kind of person who I want to work with, whether I want to see if they can write. Of course, they have to have talent, but you know, I really only want to work with people who are serious about about comics and being professional and delivering on their promises. Cause I think, I think comics, people in comics get a bad reputation sometimes because, you know, they're all in at the get go, but when it comes time to actually deliver on those monthly deadlines, you can't find them. I hear you. You know, the, the best advice that I always give people is do the work, prove you can do the work. And that's, Number one, I mean, the work has to be magnificent, of course, but first you got to get it done. And that's something that is really tough 
I've, I've been, I've been around for long enough to like, to, to know the excuses and they come on fast and furiously. And I can, I can see someone hiding under a drawing table at 50 feet. And those are the people who really, I, I guess I, maybe I'm a little jaded, but I just, I don't have the time being a one woman operation to have to constantly do that part of the job. So the people that I'm working with are people who I feel like not only want to deliver the work on time, but they want to deliver their best work ever. Cause I'm only interested in stories that are going to linger that are original that you haven't heard before. And even if you think you've heard something like it, you truly haven't. You just have to open up the page, open up the book and start reading because I think that's what's going to be fascinating about Black Crown, unexpected angles. That's great. And honestly, um, both from the creative standpoint, but also hitting the deadlines, because I want to ask you, because obviously you're a proponent for women to get you know better opportunities and stuff. And uh, every, I think, honestly, uh, most people are on page with, yes, we want to see more voices. We want to see more varied voices, people of color people of, of different orientations and, and, you know, both sexes to be better represented. The, sometimes the question is, can they make those deadlines? Uh, there's a lot of new voices that are demanding to be heard, but, but truly it's a question, you know, also it's, you know, getting the book out and getting it out in, in a, a reasonable time. So yeah, that people can discover you and that you can be on a decent um, schedule because obviously you and I have lived through, those decades of great ideas that don't sometimes don't yeah. even finish. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we're, we're living in a golden, a, another golden age of comics right now. My God, there's so much out there yeah. and you can virtually edit your own. You can, you can publish your own comic sure. very easily and you can get noticed, but yeah, quality is a big one. And also just, you know, actually fulfilling your promises to both not just the to your editor but the retailer and the consumer yeah. so it it's a really interesting time but that said it's scary because when you go to the comic book store there are so many choices you know everybody has four dollars you know like what are you going to buy do you want to buy the book that looks pretty that has very minimal dialogue that you can read while you're standing there you know at the uh, by the shelf or do you want to read a comic that when you open up, it grabs you by the throat, pulls you into the world, and requires multiple readings? Well, the latter is a Black Crown book, by the way, in case go. you didn't know. <laughs> but it, it's a really interesting marketplace. But, you know, it's funny. As you know, as a longtime Vertigo reader, Vertigo was always, first and foremost, um, great about diversity. And I could talk to you for days about that, but I'll just name drop a couple of things, things that I'm sure are on the tip of your tongue. But if you think back to Sandman, you know, that, that was the catchphrase with Sandman was always like, oh, that was the kind of comic book your girlfriend would steal from you. And then she'd give to her friends. And then it became much more than that because people just started to read it because it was just you know, a wonderful, rich tapestry, mythology, great art. But if you look at it and you, and you think back to Doom Patrol, I mean, Rachel Pollack was writing Doom Patrol after Grant Morrison left the book. I mean, Lou Stathis hired her to write that book, and I think she was one of the first transgendered people to write 
comics, certainly for a mainstream publisher. What a tremendous achievement. You know, he's one editor who doesn't get mentioned much. I'm glad you did. Comics. Yes, please go on. Now, he was a, he was a mentor to me and just what he did incredible books. And he was also someone who firmly believed in the comics and music connection. And I think that's that's one of many things we had in common. Um, but he was a, an editor at Reflex magazine. And when he came to Vertigo, I was really pissed off. I was Karen's associate at the time, but I wanted to be a full editor. And she she told me when I when I joined Vertigo that as soon as I was ready, she would promote me. So she had the slot open. And I thought I was going to be a shoe in because I was editing Shade at that time. And Neil Gaiman was seemed to be pretty happy working with me. I was getting a lot of props. But she hired Lou Stathis, and I so I instantly despised him because I I felt like that was my that was my job he just stole. But after listening to him speak so eloquently about music and comics, and you know he edited Howard Chaikin's Black Kiss, I wanted to slap him in the face just for that. But we became friends because I just respected him so much, and his philosophy was really that people that like pop culture. We're all cut from the same cloth, and we're kind of – we're definitely the weirder, darker, twisted side. <laughs> but that type of material is exactly what I've always tried to imbue in my comics where, wherever I've worked. And the greatest thing about Black Crown is that IDW totally gets my vision, and they've rolled out the red carpet for me to do so. That's awesome. Well, how do you, as you say, it's a really competitive time right now, and it's really tough to get people's attention. So what do you do? Because really, a lot of times it it comes down to a cover. And I, and I, by the way, I think the covers for Kid Lobotomy look great. Uh, But yeah, I mean, like, what do you, what do you do to, uh, to stand out in today's environment? You know, produce quality stories, you know, at the end of the day, people want to be wowed and they want to be entertained and, and they want to be educated, too. I mean, I think that that's one of the real brilliances of writers like Peter Milligan and Grant Morrison. You know, not only did they write weird, quirky, surreal shit, but they were geniuses. So they're imbuing their readers with just a wealth of knowledge and information. And maybe, you know, maybe my IQ isn't 180, but man, that stuff sticks. And I can tell you that over the years, reading comics, just, it's so gratifying because of that, you know, and then throw in artwork, you know, by people like Bill Sienkiewicz, you know, real innovators, Matt Wagner, people that can really, Gilbert Hernandez, people that tell stories unlike any other. What a great experience. I think that's what comics can do best. I feel like, you know, you, you, you have Netflix, you've got TV studios, you have, you have films. There are so many cooks and art by committee is something I've never liked. You know, you have to be a team player when you work for a big company, of course, but it's just there's nothing worse than a watered down concept. You know, readers are smart. They can see it and they can smell it. And I think that's the one thing that I hope comes through with Black Crown. It's pure and it's true. These are comics that I'm putting together that I want to read. 
I want them to exist because I want them to live on. You know, I want them to be like comics that you put on your desert island list. Sure. Because that's how you pave the way for the next generation to keep raising the bar on art. And I kind of look at it sort of like what Warhol was doing with Interview Magazine. You know, you, you just you just need to be at the right place at the right time. But no one's going to be waiting for you. You have to go after it. You have to go out and find interesting people. Yeah. And if you believe in their vision, and then, you know, that's important to impart on the page. And then to create just a wonderful package, a reading experience to take on, you know, to kind of to to not just enjoy yourself, but just to kind of pass on to the next generation. Because I think that's what's, you know, what we're really talking about now is just, you know, how comics have, have become, you know, they've gone from such a niche format to like very much, you know, just commonplace in bookstores. And my son is is 12. And of course, everybody in his school knows what a graphic novel is. But you and I remember when that was a weird term, like, what does that mean? We're living in an age where because there's so much competition, I think, you know, you have to be selective about how you spend your money. And you want to get bang for your buck. And for me, the reason I go back to a lot of the music that I discovered in the 80s, and the 90s is because I think there's such a power and such a pureness to what those artists were trying to say. And I think that it really helps to build your own personal manifesto in that respect. That's awesome. And yeah, I, I completely hear what you're saying. And then I, I tend to agree. And I love your references to Warhol's interview, for example. I, uh, so for these, these books, because I, I hear what you say, too, where you want these books to stick. Um, I wonder if some of these really good image books kind of outlive their usefulness, and sometimes these series go too long. And coming from Vertigo, where, you know, 100 Bullets went 100 issues, and Scalped went 70 or 80 issues, however many it was. Sandman certainly had a good run. Uh, hey, let me just, let me just yeah. interject by saying Fables hit 150. There you go. Okay. I'm proud of that one. Absolutely. That was one of mine. The, the, the great thing about that, I ha I'll share a very quick story, but it's too cute. So Bill Willingham and I go way back. We started Fables. I knew from the phone call when he pitched it to me, I had shivers up and down my spine. I knew that was going to be a home run. I loved it. I wanted it. He didn't even really want to pitch that one to me, and I made him. I knew that was going to have longevity, and Bill always said he wanted to go longer than Sandman. And at that time, Sandman had ended at 75. And of course there were some spinoffs, but he's like, yeah, let's just, let's just like one up Sandman. Well, we doubled Sandman, Neil Gaiman, as I know you've noticed. And Bill and Neil are, are friendly and really um, admire each other's work. And actually Bill got his start at Vertigo because I went into Karen and and pitched Bill as a writer, and she hadn't been familiar with his work. She knew him as an artist, and she wasn't sure. And so I went to Neil. I said, Neil, I want Bill Willingham to do some work for Vertigo. I can't convince Karen he's a genius. And she said, well, give her Coventry, and I'll have a word with her too. And so I did, and we started Bill on a Sam Man Presents book. So Oh, that's crazy. Bill Bill adores Neil and vice versa. But the story, I think, is adorable because if you know anything about Bill Willingham's track record um, in the 80s, 
it's good and not so good because he worked on the elementals yep. and then Kamiko went under and then he was hard to find. Ironwood, was that one of the... Uh... It was. That was not one I worked on, but that was a Bill Willingham okay, book. Okay, I remember that one, yeah. yeah. But it's funny because anyone that remembers working with Bill sometimes says Bill was hard to find and he didn't often deliver and then he would just kind of skip town. And I know that from experience because I used to have to, to track him down on those last issues of the elementals. Okay. But I digress. Let's go back to your nope. point about black. Okay. But yeah, I, well, and I was wondering in terms, because those are the exceptions. Those are the ones that we, you know, we stayed on the journey and stuff and fables because it was such a large environment could go in so many different directions and, and, and be so many different things. I wonder about some of these image books that have been great, but kind of, mm. you know, after, you know, 20 or 30 issues, it's like, all right, are we, you know, as a consumer sometimes, it's like, where are we going? We're not sure, yeah. you know, as a reader. And sometimes you you wonder if that's because there isn't an editor on hand to ask the right questions. And I, and I, I have some friends that work at Image who – you know, Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips are old friends of mine. We worked together for years um, at Vertigo. And so many, I know so many people who work with Image, and some of them have editors and some do not. But as an editor, you know, I re- the job isn't the same thing for every book. Okay. You know, an editor is a master control, has to be a Jill of all trades. What you don't know how to do, you have to fake. But every freelancer on every book, whether it's the writer, artist, letterer, colorist, cover artist, needs a different part of your brain. Some people are just right from the get-go. Brian Bolland is a cover artist, just a genius, magnificent, so much fun to work with. We had many long conversations about British music. Sometimes we disagreed. Sometimes we disagreed. We both agreed that the best New Order song was Age of Consent. I can that. But then you have people who need a different part of your brain. You know, someone like Mark Buckingham, who was so integral for the success of Fables. He and I were daily chats. Daily, I mean, he was always a steady worker, but we were constantly in touch with each other. So you wonder if some of those books could benefit from an editor, if not from a, a story structure authority. Maybe just someone to wake you up in the morning or maybe someone to proofread your text because the kerning doesn't look good on your captions and you need to add some space between the F and the I. (laughs) Certain fonts are deadly. So sometimes I wonder if it's just a matter of needing that person who isn't so invested, who's not the part of the the creator-owned aspect of it, who can step outside of – the moment and say this sounds great but it's not a five-part storyline it's a three-part storyline and then maybe you should do a guest story about one of the main characters so we can get more personal so the editor's always probably going to say that but i say that with love because as an editor i feel like the way i approach every book is so different and some people like your very seasoned professionals may not need someone to tweak their dialogue, you know, may not um, want someone to remind them there's repetition on the page, whether it's the way somebody's mouth is open three times on the same page or whether somebody's missing a shoe. It all depends. (laughs) 
Okay, because yeah, I, I th- that's the thing I think, uh, and it, and evidence in a lot of the books that you edited at Vertigo, and I'm not even sure if it was just a, a decision between creators and yourself, or was it you know the powers that be saying, all right, we'll give you eight issues, but that's it, versus hey, this is a great idea, we love this, go, you know, in the cases of Sandman and you know uh, Jason Aaron's, you know, and got him um, scalped and you know things like that. Yeah, you know, whenever we would, certainly when I'd work for Kamiko or Vertigo. Uh-huh. I had no we idea would, you went that far back, by the way, which is awesome with Ellen oh, yeah. and Kamiko. So we'll get to the origin, but go on. <laughs> yeah, I told you you were a little bit older than me. So it, it really does warm my heart to know that. Um, usually with most projects, Certainly at Vertigo, you know, when, you know, when we worked for Karen, especially, you know, we would, we would have writers pitch us, uh, just an, you know, a paragraph idea first, and then we would, we would build it. You know, we would certainly not buy something unless we were pretty sure that the first storyline was solid. And in a case like Fables, I mean, that concept to me, I, from the get go, I felt like go on and on. Um, and I also knew that that Bill could handle it. I mean, it you know the concept itself is nothing if the execution isn't original. And if there's one thing that Bill does so well, you know, he carves his own path. You know, he's going to meet you in the woods, and he the two of us are going to get out by different means. And, and I can assure you that his way is not what you think it is. So. A lot of the times when, when you when you buy a project, you have a pretty clear idea of what the beginning, the middle, and end is. Now, whether or not what you think you buy and then what comes out on the page is the same thing, that's another story. And some editors are very hardcore and stick to their guns, and they really feel like it's important to hit all the story beats. That's where I differ, I think, from a lot of other editors, because I have a... a visual background. And I believe that comics are very much alive and they need to grow and they need to happen fast. So that's another reason why I think part of my editorial philosophy is you get in fast, you make sure you have a strong framework, but you don't want to overwrite and you don't want to overthink because you lose so much of the energy. You know, there were times where there were pitches that would come in and I won't I won't say which company, but because I worked for three, but, you know, people would get grilled and they'd have to rewrite their pitch over and over again. They'd spend six months. They feel like they already wrote the story and they don't even like it anymore. Sure. So a smart editor has to know, OK, when is enough enough? And who is the person who is really interested in making this a unique story, making this unlike any else and making characters who are not two dimensional characters who say things that matter and that don't just have money lines at the end of a page. That's what I find interesting. And that's what I also wonder about with some of the other companies when they're buying projects, are they buying them just based on a name, you know, just because somebody wants to do a book or are they buying them on an original idea? And if so, is the writer or the artist and writer team challenged to actually take this seemingly brilliant idea and then just move it to next level? Okay. Interesting. I, uh, 
I, I, as far as Black Crow, uh, Crown goes, um, how many how, how many books are ready to roll, and how are they going to roll out? Well, Chris Royal and I have had this worked out for, for a very long time. I've only been technically working for IDW since February, but I met up with Chris last winter. And pretty much pitched him the line. It, it must be said that on my last day at Vertigo, which was, I think it was April 29th of 2016, I got an email from Chris Ryle. And to be honest, I didn't know who the hell he was. I knew him by reputation because one of my former assistants worked for him. But I, so I knew his name, but I could not have picked him out in a lineup. Even if somebody was going to break my Bowie vinyl collection, I would have been like, certainly would not have picked him out. And he wrote me a quick email. He said, hey, I was bummed to hear that you're no longer at Vertigo. If you still want to stay in comics, please let me know. We'd love to chat with you. And I was pretty, I was really touched by that. And I wrote back, hey, can't really work until the end of the summer. I'm going to send you my first resume. Then, of course, I did some, some, quick background check on him and you know while his musical taste isn't bad there were a few there were a few things in there like motorhead i wasn't 100 percent sure it was going to work out but as soon as i sent him my resume and he called me in you know for an interview i totally knew he got it because unlike some people who said oh yeah i loved your books you did great work at vertigo he actually read my books You know, he wasn't just saying, oh, yeah, you worked on Sandman. Like, he knew I started on Sandman 48, and he knew that I was responsible for Dead Enders and Ed Brubaker. And he he pretty much knew my career because I think he was one of those kids who discovered Mature Reader Comics maybe before he should have. I'm giving him a prop here (laughs) because I I know he's younger than me. I don't know how much. But I think that was a fascinating time for comics readers back in the early 90s. And I think he was just along with us. You know, he was one of that, the discerning uh, crew of people that remember those those halcyon days, the early days of Vertigo. There were nothing like those days. They were incredible and so liberating. And I hope that Black Crown brings that same kind of energy because essentially – I'm trying to ignite another comics revolution here. And this time it's coming with a soundtrack. I was going to ask, and that's excellent because I, I assumed there would be playlists for the various titles and stuff. Is that is that part of the plan there? Or? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and it's, it's even more than part of the plan. You know, I think that, you know, I, I got into comics from reading Love and Rockets and also Matt Wagner's Grendel. And Reading Love and Rockets, I wasn't I, I wasn't a kid who was into comics. I discovered them in college. I had a screenwriting class. So my teacher used an uh, a, an issue of Empire Lanes by Peter Gross as an example of storyboarding. Interesting. And I didn't I didn't even read comics really as a kid. Maybe the occasional Archie Digest. I loved the Peanuts though. The, I just was fascinated with Charles Schultz, so I read the books and. I, but I didn't, I wasn't a comics reader. I just presumed that comics were still superheroes, you know, mostly men, misogynistic, women running around in bathing suits and high heels. I mean, the fact that they hadn't, even at that, at that stage, it was 1987, the fact that they couldn't even put women in platforms 
women, at least women can run in platforms. But the fact that men were putting women in stilettos and lipstick and still running around, you know, I found that offensive, I frankly. That, absolutely. So, so it didn't appeal to me on any level. But what my teacher showed us through Empire Lanes was that there's storyboards on a page. There's movement so it's an illusion. And I found that fascinating. So to pull in the Will Dennis connection, he was in my screenwriting class and I didn't really know him well, but he had mentioned, he must've seen the look of fascination on my face. Cause he said to me, Hey, if you think that's cool, there's a comic book store downtown. I work there. You might like some of the books. And of course I looked at him with utter disdain because I was a film snob I only wanted to become like an auteur and move to London and make my own films that acknowledged the French New Wave. But I took him up on it and I said, all right, I'm going to go see what, what this is all about. And when I walked into that store, it was like Dorothy and Oz. I saw Electra Assassin, Bill Sienkiewicz's cover, it literally like jumped into my arms. Love and Rockets, yeah. Rendell was on issue 16, 17. First issue of Hellblazer, I was hooked. That's awesome. That's fantastic. What, you know, and also coming from that time too, did, because music videos back then were more ambitious. Oh, yeah. When it was still, you know, brand new and so many filmmakers, you know, came through those doors and stuff. Was that, was that a thought as well? Did you want to do that leading up to film? I mean, what, you know? Well, interestingly enough, I come from two family businesses. My father's, my father owns a dry cleaning empire that my sister runs. Okay. Thank God. Cool. So she runs that, so I can be a comic book editor. I hear you. <laughs> That's a great. That hey man, seriously, so isn't it great much. that there are like those kind of grounded businesses where that? And I truly mean it. Where it's like, oh, that's fantastic. Good for you guys. That's wonderful. Well, you have you have to remember that as you know, as a kid, I was forced to work at the sweatshop, and my dad would make me go upstairs and press pants and sort hotel laundry while my my sister would work downstairs in the air conditioning and be the receptionist. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that he was prepping her for a life of ruling the cleaning empire. So, but meanwhile, you know, I was doing all the, the, drudge work and but i but i can press a mean pants leg so that's fantastic in a a pinch if we're at a con you you bring a wrinkly pair of pants i won't charge you full price that's good i'll give you the other side the other side of my family's in the beauty business so you would think i'd be a total diva we've got dry cleaning and beauty business but my grandfather owned a beauty school and from when i was a little girl i wanted to be a tap dancer and also be a hairstylist. But I didn't just want to cut hair like at like a corner salon. I wanted to work for Tony and Guy, who were these innovative um, hairdressers in London, who everybody now sees their, their products at, in drugstores. But back in the early 80s, my uncle had the opportunity to go into business with them. And he did not... And that's all I'm going to say. They're, they're still very friendly with the owners of the company, but he still hits himself for not investing because he's billionaires. But I wanted to do video hair design. Um, I think as far as music videos, I probably wanted to do that too. But I had just as much fun taking like copies of VHS of like uh, the jam snap and putting myself and my friends like in those early videos. So. I don't know if I wanted to 
shoot and direct music videos, but they were a big part of my life, and so was DJing. Actually, that's cool. That's cool. I'm a huge I'm a huge Paul Weller fan. I uh, oh, anytime good. he comes oh. to Chicago, it's like, oh yeah, <laughs> yes please. One, well, it's it's nice to actually hear someone say that because I am the only one that goes to the Paul Weller shows, and it's always been like that. Uh, my husband is he's British, and he tells me all the time. Whatever you do, never admit to your British freelancers that you love the Style Council. Oh, I love the Style Council, too, of course. Thank God I have another friend. I was going to make a summer joke and that it's good to hear because I like it all. I'm a big fan of the jam. I love the Style Council. I don't know what people were thinking when they were just slamming on Paul Weller, but I could see it coming. From the jam, the gift. I don't know about you. I could see that evolving. And I think his solo stuff is great. I saw him perform in the early 90s. I was by myself. Nobody would ever go to the show with me. And I would just go front row and just go crazy. That's great. I Yeah, any, like I said, anytime he's in Chicago, I, I make sure that I make time for it and everything. And no, I, yeah, the style concert, just, just the lushness of it. And again, I, I guess I get it. And it's certainly for jam fans, it is kind of, it feels like a slap in the face, I suppose. But, but, but think about, you have to think about though, like how like extraordinary it was for him just to kind of like at the height of the, their career, he decided to just take a left turn. Like good for him. I mean, that's how you evolve. Sure. And that that's how you innovate and that's how you pave the way for like the next generation is by being brave, you know, taking those chances. I agree. And, and swinging it back to black crown and everything. I'm really glad that, uh, IDW is giving you this, this opportunity to, to go this, this bold way. So, you know, you were telling me off, off the air that you're just prepping, uh, the first, is it a quarterly? Is that the plan for the, the magazine beyond the, uh, well, actually, let me go through the whole rollout with Wild you because I, I I warned you that I get get a bit chatty and I go off in tangents. Right. So here's the real meat and bones of Black Crown for this first rollout. Um, and again, it's something that Chris Ryle and I worked out many, many months ago. Um, he's been a tremendous support to not just to me, but for the whole imprint and also um, in supporting my husband, who is doing a lot of the design work, by the way. Um, so here, I'm going to go through the rollout real quickly sure. for you. And then I want you at the end to promise me you're going to ask me about the logo. Cause that's a great story. Fair enough. So basically black crown launches in October with kid lobotomy, which is, you know, I've said this, um, in print many times, but you don't launch a new imprint every day. You got to go out there with guns a blazing and, The debut comic for a new imprint is like a debut album. It's a statement of intent, and it's absolutely everything and more that I want to let the world know about the philosophy of Black Crown. It's dark. It's demented, not unlike Peter Milligan. And it also has a sense of black humor. I love satire. I think it's important right now. We're living in terrible times. I mean, every generation can say that. I mean, there are social and political upheavals in every decade. We're living in some really questionable times right now. So I want to create comics that people can go to, to actually have a good laugh. You know, there's nothing better than a comic that makes you feel like, Hey, that was worth my four bucks. You can get a coffee or you can have a comic. And I want 
Black Crown Comics to feel substantive and to have the kind of moxie and swagger of your favorite rock star. And I want the characters to be the kind of people you'll follow into a volcano. And that's exactly what you get with Kid Lobotomy. It's monthly. It comes out on October 18th. And in fact, we're debuting at New York Comic Con. And we have a panel on the Friday night and a signing in the evening at St. Mark's Comics, um, which is basically at St. Mark's Place, which is my high street, which is the street that was the inspiration for the Black Crown Street, which is the cross street of comics and chaos, otherwise known as Cannon Street and Great Yarn Street. So that's the first book, Kid Lobotomy, October 18th. A week later, on October 25th, is the Black Crown Quarterly. And you might know uh, Vertigo put together a few quarterlies in in, uh, in a number of years back, and Will Dennis and I worked on those. Um, CMYK and the SFX quarterly anthology. Will and I loved those books. I did did one similar back in the day called Winter's Edge, and that was – you know, I, I felt like people actually like the magazine format because they like to get a taste of different uh, material. And so I thought it was really important for Black Crown to have a quarterly. And I wanted to imbue the spirit of the old Deadline magazine. Are you familiar with Deadline? Remind me because, I'm, you know, I could, you know, obviously it's a, it's a, a common phrase, but go on. Tell me about Deadline. Oh. Well, Deadline Magazine, and, and, and it should have been right up your alley. You're the right age range. It was sort of the home of Tank Girl, and a lot of the early Steve Dillon and Grant Morrison and Philip Bond works. And it was it, – possibly it was hard to get. You know, I, I only started reading it, to be honest, when I started working at Vertigo because I certainly didn't get it at my local shop in Philadelphia. Me neither. And there you go. Be, right? Go on. So, so it, it was um, – it, it was just a magazine that had a lot of short continuing features, whether they were five pages or 10 page features. It always had like uh, essays and music reviews. And I pretty much pitched this idea to, to Chris that it would be a compendium of all things comics, culture and cool. So it was, you know, in addition to, of course, like a 10 page story called Tales from the Black Crown Pub, which basically is set on the street, and you'll see characters from all the comic books making cameos. That's a regular 10-page feature that's written and drawn by Rob Davis. Are you familiar with his work? No, tell me. Oh, my God. All right. This is a, a talent that when you end this interview, I implore you to go order his books. He is a, an award-winning writer-artist. He did a book called The Motherless Oven. Okay. Does that sound familiar? No, but go on. He did, he did a follow-up called The Can Opener's Daughter. And when I read The Motherless Oven, I, I tweeted out immediately that it, it was um, The Wizard of Oz meets 2001 with a soundtrack by The Jam. If that's not a book for you... <laughs> I feel like I've gotten to know you pretty well in these past 50 minutes. That's a new book for you. And he's a British artist and he is incredible. He's, he's, he's such a visionary. He's, um, you know, he's pretty much the whole package. And I feel like it's, it's pretty hard to be, to excel at writing and drawing and coloring. And he's like the trifecta, which is pretty much why I hired him to, to do the, the regular story. He also, when I asked him about, 
taking on this job, he, he pretty much said that um, he's constantly at the pub, his money turns to beer, all of his children were born of barmaids, and his soul has been eaten by spirits. So he is like, he's probably the, the worst person to handle this this uh, 10 page recurring story. But of course I thought that made him the only person to actually do this story. So the book starts off with that 10 page lead tales of the black crown pub. But then after that, we have so many different features. We have a five page feature called cud rich and strange. Are you familiar with the band cud? No. Okay. Again, as soon as you pause this interview, you need to get Leggy Mambo. Cut is the band that would have taken America by storm if Jarvis Cocker hadn't have gotten here first. So they they were a band that got together in the 80s, and they're like smart and cool. But I think like the comics we were discussing earlier, when they're just too there's too much competition, some people get pushed out of the sure. way. Cud is a band that I discovered through my husband because he actually knew the band back in the 90s and he did, did a little bit of album art for them. But the, the bassist of Cud is a comic book writer. And I'm not going to tell the whole story here, but there's a really funny origin story about how the, the comic book came to be. But basically, it's a story of the rise and fall of Cud. And they're still around. They've been around since, I think, 86. Okay. And they've never taken America. So I'm determined to get them to crack America. And this is a story told by the bassist, Will Potter, and the lyricist, um, Carl Putnam. And it's illustrated by Philip Bond. And it's told from the point of view of Will and Carl from the Dying Embers Retirement Home. And it's sort of about like what their life was and what it could have been. And it's really funny. I think you'll really enjoy Interesting. it. That sounds great. Well, and also the, the, the Black Crown feature reminds me, at least in description, of almost like a Munden's Bar, but with more purpose in terms of obviously just kind of unifying the environment and having characters, you know, that you're going to see in other stories, whereas Munden's Bar was really, yeah. you, you know what I'm talking about? John Ostrander? Oh, okay. Sure. okay, I don't know. Yeah, sure. of course. Okay, cool. And it, uh, the other thing that you'll see in the quarterly is you'll see previews for some of the other books. Okay. Um, you know, there'll be, there'll be a couple story pages, but you'll see, you'll get so much more than that. You know, we have interviews uh, with the teams. We have essays about different subjects and also, there's a um, a feature called Cannonball Comics, which is kind of part Exquisite Corpse, part New Talent Showcase. So basically, that's my love letter to St. Mark's Comics. And it, I pretty much um, put together a comic shop and, and let a young talent come in and in five pages establish the comic book shop and also a potential story that he or she may want to tell as a recurring story in the quarterly. So the first one is really fun. It's a genre story um, about a couple of kids who um, sort of fall into this uh, heist situation that's that's pretty deadly. Um, and the other thing that I, I, I definitely want you to know about the quarterly is that there's a, a feature that that's recurring on page 48 called Hey Amateur. 
And it's something I've always wanted to do. It's, it's how to do anything in nine panels. And this was a way for me to reach out to people from all different parts of pop culture. Um, I start out with Cindy Whitehead, who is uh, one of the Hall of Fame skateboarders. She was oh, cool. inducted. Yeah, it's pretty cool. She was inducted in 2016 into the Hall of Fame. And Joan Jett was the person who actually did the speech wow. and welcomed her. So Cindy is really cool. She's had like a rad career in the 70s. To use one of her words, rad, <laughs> which is very California and it's very Cindy. She's she's one of the coolest people I've met in many, many years. She has a website called girlisnotafourletterword.com. And I met her through Jim Rugg, who's also one of my favorite cartoonists. Who, Great guy. Who I'm not to. I always have to qualify that. I married my favorite artist, but there are many favorite artists who are favorites that I'm not, I'm not married to. But he's up there. He could be number 1.2. on my. <laughs> so he introduced me to Cindy. And Cindy is doing How to Do an Ollie in Nine Panels with this amazing young artist named Nicole Gao. So that that's a feature that will be recurring every issue. <laughs> One other thing I want to share about it, I'm giving it all away, but it's so cool. There's a feature called Swell Maps, which is basically a two-page feature that traces the history of musical groups city by city. So we start with Leeds, and of course, Cud started in Leeds. Okay. So there's a nice little crossover there. But it's written by Kathy Unsworth, who also is a fascinating force of nature. She was one of the youngest female journalists in England. She was 19 when she first started working for Sounds. And then she went on to work for Melody Maker and awesome. many other publications. And so she she's also a novelist. And she's just a brilliant writer. So she's going to be doing these features on on bands and so it's like i said it's just chock full of like comics cool info essays and how to's and all kinds of special features and a wraparound cover as well and a poster a pull-out poster can you believe Fantastic. it Fantastic. <laughs> poster of a frank quietly image wow what more could you want wow from really that's awesome that's fantastic and yeah you know and it's kind of now I'm I'm feeling my age saying this, but honestly, like, is I really hope that a young audience really appreciates what you're putting together because this is the kind of magazine I would be reading in the '80s, absolutely, and stuff, and and will be excited to pick up now. So you know, I don't know. Let, <laughs> let me throw in a couple of other um, books so that you can just just to pique your interest. Um, Assassinistas, which I mentioned very briefly, which is Gilbert Hernandez's book, is um, previewed in the quarterly, but it launches in December. So the first issue is out December 27th. And I paired Gilbert with a young writer who I'm convinced is now the it girl of comics. And she's just whip smart. I describe her as having the world building chops of Grant Morrison with the romantic soul of Garth Ennis's Hellblazer run and the balls of Kelly Sudaconic. She is just unbelievable. And she's funny, too. I think a lot of times um, you, you hear people saying that women and people of different genders and ethnicities get a break because of the diversity card. Well, I don't believe in that. 
I mean, someone has to wow me with their chops, with their prose, with their scene changes, with their their ear for dialogue, you know, with clever phrases, with with their storytelling chops. You know, it's to me, a great writer is what's important. What's really important is that someone actually um, can get the job done and be original and not sound like anyone else on the page. And Teeny is all of those things, and she has incredible musical taste. What's her full name? Teeny Howard. Teeny Howard, okay. She's written a nice um, bit of things here and there. She's, she uh, was the writer of The Skeptics by Black Mask. Okay, which sure. is yes, incredible. yes. And she also just finished an issue of Rick and Morty. Oh, great. Very cool. Pocket Like You Stole It, which is hilarious. She has a great sense of humor. And she also is writing a Hack Slash series. Oh, that's great. She's the writer of Magdalena. So she's she's not a, a super newbie by any means, but I, I was thrilled to actually reach out to her and to, to hear that she was also a, a fan of some of my Vertigo titles and that she was really interested in not just writing comics, but like changing the landscape. And like she's in it for the long haul. And I find that, you know, really um, her enthusiasm is really infectious. She is like a, a terrific salesperson because she has some retail experience and she has been such a tremendous support for the line. At the end of the day, I think when you see what Gilbert Hernandez draws, obviously Gilbert, I mean, he was just uh, he was just and elected into the Hall of Fame, the Eisner Hall of yep. Fame this summer, right? I was there too. So to see Gilbert and Jaime finally get their due is great. You can really tell someone's talent, and I'm talking about a writer in this point, by seeing what the artist captures on the page. You know, and I've never seen a Gilbert Hernandez page look less than magnificent. What he's doing with Teeny Script is un. Believable. I'm excited. That's fantastic, and yeah, it's great. And I uh, it and also reminds me to <laughs> make sure that I get them both on a, a kind of upcoming word balloon. That would be good, terrific. It sounds wonderful. There's another book I want to tell you about because the writer's a journalist, and I think he would be another interesting person for you to talk to. His name is David Barnett. Okay. He's a journalist for the Guardian. He's a novelist, and he's about to be a, a comics writer. And I think that's what he's most excited about. Also a, a Vertigo fan from the heyday, you know, read all the early books like all of us. He was a big Invisibles fan. And I think he even knew the issue when I took over the Invisibles, which scored him a few points. <laughs> but, you know, I had to put him through his paces before I was convinced he could be a, a great comic book writer. But he's a total natural. And he's doing a book called Punk's Not Dead, which basically answers the age-old what-if what if you were raised by a single mom and Sid Vicious, the, the ghost of Sid Vicious, is your father figure? Wow. <laughs> and that book, you know, that's, that's a book that kind of like defies my original rule of bringing together a hardcore veteran with a punk neophyte. Because both David Barnett, the writer, and Martin Simmons, the artist, are pretty new to comics. Okay. 
Martin is a British artist who did quite a bit of work on a book called Death Sentence that Titan put out that I might not have found had I not been at the Bristol Convention some years back. And I met the writer Monty Nero, who just very politely came to one of my portfolio reviews, said nothing, sat down quietly, listened, and then just thanked me for letting him sit there and then asked me if I would like a copy of his book. Well, I took it, ran out the door to catch a plane, read it on the plane, and was very impressed. And I've been watching Martin Simmons' work evolve over a few years. And I have to confess that when I was working with David Barnett on the pitch many months ago, I was trolling on Instagram, as you do, and I saw this incredible image that I thought was was for sure a Bill Sienkiewicz drawing, because I follow Bill. Sure. Like, who doesn't? Yeah. And when I looked closer, I saw it was by Martin Simmons, and I went, shit, Martin Simmons, wow, he's really, like, upped his game. So I reached out to him just to compliment him, and he was very taken aback and didn't really believe it was me, but (laughs) called him a few days later, and I said, hey, I've got this project. You want to do character sketches on spec? And I sent it to him, and he sent me back sketches that got him the job. I mean, of course, I looked at his storytelling. And if he couldn't tell a story, I would not have hired him. But man, did he deliver on those sketches. And we just knew it was a home run. And so um, it's been a dream team ever since. And they're working on their third issue right now. And that's a book that comes out in February. So you'll also see a preview of the book in the quarterly. And David and Martin do a really funny interview. They interview each other at a pub. Um, so it's a fun interview that you'll also get in the quarterly. Wow. Well, now, now tell me about the logo, the black crown logo. Well, the, the short story about the black crown logo, if I can even do short story, take as much time as you want, Shell. It's all good. (laughs) So when I, I, I knew I wanted to do black crown and I knew that I, I wanted to work with my husband, you know, he was, Uh, one of my freelancers at Vertigo, but in the early years, you know, I fell in love with his work um, from right from the get go. It was when I first started working on shade, Philip did a guest artist issue with Glenn Dillon. And as soon as my eyes hit the page, I was smitten. And I said, wow, who's this artist? I love his art. I want him to draw everything for me. And of course, Karen chuckled and said, good luck. He doesn't deliver often. And I was like, well, he has not met me and I can charm him into delivering. Well, for the first four or five years, we were friends and I didn't get him to deliver too much. He could often help us with a handful of pages, but he was clearly the kind of artist who worked paycheck to paycheck to get into the pub because he was still a student He was in his early 20s. I would go to shows and I would, you know, we would just hang out. We were friends. We fell in love when we were working on The Invisibles because there was no choice. Grant Morrison said he, Philip had to do a whole storyline and Karen said, do what it takes. So I called him twice a day. I sent lots of care packages. At that time, there were, it was hard to get Oreos where Philip lived in England. So I would charm him with mixed tapes and Oreos. (laughs) Sure enough. I I somehow convinced him to not only finish the book, but then to move to the States and marry me. So anyway, enough said about the marriage. It's 17 years. But 
when I was working at Vertigo and we were married, it seemed like a conflict of interest. And I really didn't want to cross that line, to be honest. It just, it didn't feel right. And Philip certainly worked for other companies and worked for other people at Vertigo. But the greatest joy that I've had since leaving Vertigo is working for a small company that really doesn't care. You know, Chris Ryle said to me from my interview, I love Philip's work. We want Philip to work here too. And I said, if you're okay with that, I would love for him to be a big part of Black Crown because not only is he a great artist, but he's an incredible designer. And so Chris was like, absolutely, to the point where when we had another meeting a month later, Chris took us out to lunch, and I swear he didn't make eye contact with me at all. He and Philip just talked the whole time, which made me very happy because I could enjoy my lunch. But, uh, it wasn't that funny, but it was a true story. So anyway, back to the logo. So I knew Philip was going to be my secret weapon. I knew he was going to be my partner in crime, and I pretty much didn't want to over art direct him because I think he's a genius. You know, I, in addition to the advice from an editor, the three words are do the work two words, marry. Well, I married my favorite artist. I married an incredibly talented guy. I said, I want three things from the black crown logo. I want a black crown. Obviously I want a logo that doesn't need any typography to know what it is. So, of course, we have a, stand, a font that we use that's brilliant. But eventually, hopefully, we'll just have the icon. And three, I want this logo to have so much swagger, not unlike the Rolling Stones tongue logo, that I want Andy Warhol to crawl out of his grave to appropriate it. Philip <laughs> did this logo on one take, and that's talent. And I have not looked back. I think you can't come out of the gate with an imprint without a logo that says it all, you know, not unlike the debut book encompassing all the aspects of your line, whether it's horror, crime, a satire, your logo has to say those things too. It has to say modern. It has to say, I dare you. All those things I hope are, are connoted by this logo. And Philip has been not just a tremendous support in helping me through all aspects of the line in terms of doing artwork, but he's also really been like the main designer of everything from the ads to the quarterly to newsletters. Anything that we do, um, I definitely do a little bit of the design work because I've always been a frustrated art director and I took an Adobe Illustrator class. So I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, I'm also doing a bit of the design. He's really the heart and soul of the look of Black Crown. And in some ways, we're packaging it for IDW. We're, we're certainly working with their wonderful staff, and, and everybody there has been amazing and supportive. But I think Philip and I have a really clear artistic vision for the line that's bold and graphic and, and cool and, and, and in some ways um, very much like uh, design you recall from England in the 90s. You know, the uh, ID magazine, Select, Deadline, we're really channeling those vibes and then twisting it a bit, making it 21st century friendly but uber cool. Incredible. That's fantastic. Honestly, it, it, it comes through what you're trying to do. And I do think that really, and I, and I really think this is, uh, I I'm, I'm relieved because honestly, 
I think, like I said initially, it's it's tough to be heard in today's comic market with all the competition. But the, the talent yeah. that you've assembled and and the editorial direction that you're taking and everything, it's it, it sounds like uh, again that uh, God, I want the audience to find this. Are, are the retailers excited? Are they? You know, I mean, are you getting good support? They, yes, they seem to be very excited. And I've I've one of the greatest things about working with IDW right now is that it's, it's great to be with a company that just lets you be you. And I knew that grassroots was going to be a big part of this. And I really did want to speak to the retailers, you know, going from a huge corporation where there, you know, there are sound bites and talking points and people are careful and people are worried. It's just nice to be with a company that let, lets me go back to, my own roots in comics, which is indie all the way and like walk the walk, talk the talk and really deliver on my objectives here. You know, the books are going to be beautiful. The production values that IDW puts on all their titles are top notch. We print in Korea, which means the books have to be ready early because they're delivered by boat. So I am, you know, I am editing a script from Peter Milligan that I just finished editing issue four. Tess Fowler's drawing, finishing up issue three. I've got four scripts of Punk's Not Dead in. I've got three scripts of Assassinistas in. Gilbert's working on issue two. We're working at a pace where we're at a good clip and we're going to nail those deadlines and we're going to ship on time. And the other thing we're doing which I'm sure you'll remember, I'm taking one of my favorite things about the early Vertigo years, which was that brilliant idea of putting a trade out and then taking a month or two off, putting the trade out with the next issue of the ongoing. So when you see the first trade of Kid Lobotomy, you're also going to get issue seven. So not only will you have the reader buying the collection, but they're going to get the next part of the story. And that worked for Why the Last Man, and I think that's going to work well for books like Black Crown, because I think we need that little bit of a window just as a palate cleanser. And also, you know, life happens. Sometimes the teams lose steam. Sometimes tragedy gets in the way. You know, stuff stuff happens. So I think about those things. As an editor, you know, like I was saying, you ha- um, an editor's job is much more than copy editing. You know, it's uh, – it, it's so many things. Part of it is just, you know, seeing big picture, little, little picture. And part of it is, um, you know, making sure that the spines are readable at a distance and thinking about how the books are going to roll out and thinking about what's best, you know, for the entire line. So I think you're going to see that there's a nice rhythm and a set of expectations for black crown books, not just in terms of the aesthetic of the art and design and the, and the, story that has gravitas, but also the delivery, you're going to see it. And the other thing I told retailers, which is important to me, I'm a periodical purist because I came of age like you buying the the floppy as they were called. I'm going to make sure that there is something for the periodical reader that is not in the trades. IDW um, pretty much told me I could fill my pages. You know, my stories are between 20 and 22 story pages in the book. Well, that leaves me with like eight or 10 pages where I don't have to just put lame ads for books that are irrelevant because these are mature reader books. I think My Little Pony is is a really cool book. I love (laughs) books. 
Tony Fleeks and Christina Rice are the coolest people. And like, I buy the book to support them, but I'm not going to advertise for My Little Pony in a Black I Crown do. book. That's awesome. Do yes, that. So, so we've had so much fun reinstating the letter column and I'm getting Milligan back on letter column duties, which I don't know if you, if you read shade, if you know, our letter columns were pretty funny back in the day. Um, I'm sure you remember the invisible oh, letter yeah. columns. Both, so, actually, but go on. We want to set up uh, a community again for people to really feel like they can articulate their thoughts and it's not an online space. It's a space that's in the book, like, books like it used to be. And I want it to just be a, a you know, fun conversation. And we're also, we're doing our own ads, which is like a hell of a lot of fun. We're always, um, I'm, I'm a sucker for a pun, good, for better or for worse. So you're going to see a lot of fun ads for the other books. And of course, a lot of free previews. Because I still think the thing that, that you need to do is give people a little taste of what they're about to drop their money on. And I think that if you can't read three or four pages of a preview of a comic and know that you want the comic, the editor failed. You should be able to, to like something about that book or loathe it. Maybe it's not, maybe you don't like absurdist horror. That's okay. But if it's quality and it's there and you're getting it free, Hopefully you're going to say, wow, that does look good. I'm going to try that too. Because I think the Black Crown books will hopefully feel like the early Vertigo books, the ones where you, you could trust a Vertigo because of its uh, name. Yes, the brand. Yeah. Brand is the, the quality, and it is an imprimatur. And so that's my goal is for people to just pick up the books because they're Black Crown, because they know the philosophy is sound, and hopefully it'll open up um, their minds. If it's not, you know, their typical fare, perhaps they'll like it for other reasons. You know, Gilbert Hernandez agreed to draw Sassanistas because he, he was really charmed by the pitch, but he was really blown away by the script because he doesn't have to say yes sure. <laughs> to anybody. Absolutely. And he's, he's the nicest person on the planet, but he said no to me before. So I know it's Teeny Howard's talent that got us here and I can't wait for you to see it. Well, that's great. No, and, and, and truly again, the roster that you've assembled, uh, immediately made, I think a lot of people take notice and yeah, like I said, you're the, the enthusiasm and the energy that you're expressing is really coming through and, and showing that it is something beyond just an imprint. And yeah, you, you get it, Shelly. I mean, that's why you, I think did so well for so long at Vertigo and, we trusted your projects and stuff and, and oh, absolutely. You. And, uh, yeah. And honestly, it's, I, I don't, I, I, I always feel like on a first interview, I don't want to like impose too much. And I know it's after six your time. So I, I don't, I, I would love to pick up the conversation and talk more because I'd love to hear about the Kamiko days. And, uh, I think, you know, right. scene of the crime is probably, part what's two. I said, let's oh, do a part two. Great, some truly. And, and yeah, and we'll, and we'll follow the progress of, of black crown as well, but no, it's, it's. Uh, did, I hear you, did I hear you say "scene of the crime"? Yes, I did because I loved it so much. I mean, that was oh, you know too. That was me too. Yeah, and I think because that, that really was, I think, the first Brubaker thing I read. Uh, oh, you wow. know, in the early '90s, with the exceptions of things like Invisibles and Shade and things like that, there was so much. Uh, 
well, you know, the image revolution, you know, and I understand it brought a lot of readers and stuff, but it kind of turned me off to those kinds of comics. And as we were saying earlier about Deadline, my stores weren't carrying a lot of the cool books. And I really had to, like, find the good stuff and and probably missed a lot. And so, yeah, I kind of have a blind spot in a lot of the mid-90s because of it. And it wasn't until the late 90s and things like Scene of the Crime and what Rucka was doing and... uh, Terminal City, maybe? Terminal City, certainly. Uh, is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. yeah I was gonna say, all right, I want to make sure we're talking over each other. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, no, definitely. Yeah, listen, I hear you loud and clearly. I wasn't um, part of the image revolution either. You know, I, the things that – while I was working at Vertigo, my number one favorite comic to this day of all time, it's a tie. It's Love and Rockets and Stray Bullets. Sure, yes. I mean, I thought – I, David Lapham, awesome my, God. my tiny mind. <laughs> I completely agree. I was lining up for that comic, and every time I read it, I felt like I needed to take a cold shower and <laughs> seriously have a, a, a drink and a smoke and then read it again. I mean, it was the kind of book, it just like, it cut open the heart of like everything I was thinking at the time about America, about my contemporaries, about suburban life yeah absolutely and i couldn't couldn't wait to work with him one day so we should definitely um have a part two because i i do have to run but it's been so great chatting with you and thank you so much really for all your time and your kudos it's it really is great to talk to people who kind of were back there in the in in the heyday of vertigo um you know it those were real glory days and karen and i had such a ball working together we were so different which is why i think we made a hell of an editorial team especially those those first formative years and uh i'm excited for her books too because we have such different points of view and i just think that between the two of us being out there again look out marketplace damn straight good stuff no, that's the thing, and honestly, I, it not, based on your work and also this conversation, it's I get excited when, and my my shorthand is always you get it, and that's the thing. And Karen clearly gets it as well, and I'm really glad you're both back and uh, and doing really interesting stuff. And Black Crown clearly is uh, going to be a force to contend with, and uh, I can't wait. So uh, yes, we will do a part two. But really, thank you for your time, and it was a real pleasure talking to you. Oh, you too. Thank you. Pretty neat. I cannot wait to meet Shelley Bond at New York Comic Con and thank her for the wonderful conversation. And I certainly hope she will come back and have more of them as uh, IDW's Black Crown imprint uh, grows and matures. Tell you, it sounds like a hell of a lineup. I'm genuinely excited about this imprint, and I think you should be as well. But uh, great talking to Shelley today. Uh, the final order uh, close date for um, Kid Lobotomy is September 25th. I hope you uh, go to your comic book store and order it because uh, it's going to be a great start to a new imprint and you should be there right on the ground floor. Hope you enjoyed today's Word Balloon brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. There are great books that are on sale right now at InStock Trades. Things like the Harley Quinn Trade Paperback Volume 3, Red Meat. Uh, John Timms and Amanda Connor are your art and uh, writing team. Of course, Jimmy Palmiotti as well. Uh, Joe Michael Linzer, did he do the cover? Sure looks like he did. Uh, it's a great uh, cover, and it's a great collection of uh, Harley Quinn uh, issues um, 14 through 16 and the lead stories from 17 through 21, 168 pages, 42% off, $9.85. Check out Matthew Rosenberg's Kingpin with Ben Torres on our chores. 
This trade paperback is Born Against. A great selection. It's the first five issues of Matthew's Kingpin series. It's 112 pages, 42% off, $9.27. You can get uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, New Guard. Trade paperback volume three, Civil War, uh, written by Bendis and uh, Valerio uh, Shitey, I'm going to say. I'm guessing it isn't shitty. Uh, and he, he does amazing art. Uh, it's 136 pages. This covers Bendis's run of Guardians of the Galaxy uh, from 11 to 14. Material from Free Comic Book Day from 2016, which was Civil War, number one. But uh, neat collection of... Uh, this is when The Thing joined the Guardians. It's uh, 42% off, $11.59. Find your own books at InStockTrades.com. You're going to be able to. All you do, need to do is look up your favorite writer or favorite artist. You're going to find great books at great prices at InStockTrades.com. Thanks for listening to Word Balloon. More great stuff coming up later this week. I've got San Diego Comic-Con coming up, so we'll bring you the panels from that. And uh, also more great interviews. Man, the hits just keep on coming. There's a reason why I'm releasing them two at a time. It's to accommodate these creators that uh, want to let you know about these books. Declan Shelby was the other release from today, if you didn't know. Check it out. A wonderful conversation with him about Savage Town, the new book from Image that comes out on Wednesday. But uh, really great stuff. It's been a wonderful September. And it's all thanks to the creators who are willing and want to come on to Word Balloon. I am always flattered by uh, that willingness to uh, join us for these great conversations. And I'm happy to share them with you. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2017.